Welcome to another edition of the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. Great as always to have you with us alongside Blue Ribbon's Chris Dorch. I'm Kevin Ingram. We talk some college hoops. We're uh, into the offseason, but I don't know that there really is much of an offseason, especially with the uh, landscape of things these days. Coming up later on on our show today, we're going to have Alexander Wolf, one of the great sports writers of all time and certainly uh, as good as it gets in covering and writing about basketball. So looking forward to visiting with Alexander a little bit later. Chris, what's going on, man? Uh, you, you hit the nail on the head about the never-ending season, dude, but I don't know. I kind of like it. Yeah. Uh, I have been – there's a website. I've mentioned it on the podcast before, verbalcommits.com, and I haunt that website. I mean, I'm on it all the time because they're on it all the time. They they check right. – they must have a, a, a crew of hundreds just <laughs> scanning the Internet, scanning players uh, – social media which has become an increasing uh place where they announce where they're going to school or where they've cut down their choices yeah and you know i'm I'm always working on blue ribbon college basketball yearbook like for example this week alone um i just about made all the assignments for our upcoming 22 23 edition which you know there's 355 teams and we've probably got 35 writers yeah. that handle those. And then I always write almost 30 stories myself, and, and I keep uh, notes upon notes and folders upon folders on my computer about newcomers and where they came from and, and what they're capable of. And I get YouTube videos and watch them. So I just try to educate myself, and it it's turned into pretty much a full-time off-season gig. And sure. You know, I talk to coaches, text with them, get their opinions. It's just, I don't know, man. This, I, it, I'm living the dream. <laughs> it's, it's all I ever really wanted to do it was, was, was be around college basketball and write about it and talk about it. So here we are. The deadline has passed for entering the transfer portal to transfer and play next season. Anyway, uh, one key player I saw come off the board is Janai Broom, uh, the talented player who'd been at Moorhead State for the last couple of seasons committing to Auburn uh, picked the Tigers over Florida which was actually in his home state he's from Florida uh, Plant City I believe it is but he averaged 16 points 10 rebounds and three blocks last season uh, has also entered his name into the NBA draft is expected to return to school that will help Auburn uh, they lost Jabari Smith they lost Walker Kessler to me he's uh, more of a replacement for Kessler than for Smith but uh, that, that's one big name off the board I know there's players coming and going it's really hard to keep track of it all you were talking about uh, you know trying to, to to make sure you're staying on top of it all I saw where Keon Brooks from Kentucky entered the portal on Friday so uh, the name's getting in there but then the uh, the deadline is here now we'll see some more of these players start to fall in place at, at new destinations. Yeah, there's a couple of big ones on the board that I'm eager to see where they end up. Uh, Tyrese Hunter from Iowa State. He's a Big 12 freshman of the year and I, a, a great point guard. He's got his list to Tennessee, Kansas, Gonzaga, Texas, Purdue, and Louisville. I know he visited Tennessee over the weekend, but uh, I'd say I wouldn't be surprised if of that five, he ended up at either Kansas or Gonzaga. Uh, both have had a way of, of making just the right – uh, portal acquisitions, you know, not overdoing it, but uh, especially Gonzaga, just supplementing what they have with with acquisitions from the portal. Uh, this kid, Baylor Shireman from South Dakota State, uh, he got in the portal, and all of a sudden he's a big-time 
uh, prospect for a ton of power conference schools. You know, he's 6'6 and shoots the three pretty well. There's some other names that I thought might have fallen by now. Kid Kenneth Lofton from Louisiana Tech is 6'30", 6'7", 230. Uh, I think he's a he's a guy that can can fit in well at that higher level. Malachi Smith from Chattanooga, right? Six uh, four point guard. He's in the portal. I think he'll almost certainly go big time. He could follow his old coach to South Carolina, but I don't know if if you're going to jump and go big time. I don't know that I'd want to jump and go big time into a rebuilding right. situation. Yeah, we're, so, we're, they're getting started again. Exactly. So. Uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how the rest of it pans out. But I am glad of this. As, as much as I like keeping track of this stuff, I'm glad the NCAA set that May 1st deadline. Last year, because of COVID, it was July 1st. And uh, it was really difficult to kind of track down everybody and, and you know, get rosters set. And you just – I never had a comfort zone uh, with, you know, who was on what team and, I still have that, and now I have the added uh, discomfort of knowing what team is in what league. Uh, <laughs> right, there's, there's gonna, so many. That, I, that may I be still changing cr- this summer. Oh, it, it may, and I, you know, I've found out. Oh gosh, uh, the Sun Belt now it's got Old Dominion and Southern Miss, and they they used to be in Conference USA, and you know, it's just like that all all around. Uh, so it's funny the the first shoe that dropped was the SEC and talking about Oklahoma and Texas. And then from there, it just, you know, the Big 12 had to replace. So they took from the uh, American, and the American needed to replace. So they took from Conference USA and on and on and on. Yeah, I saw uh, this morning where I know Cincinnati and maybe one or two others that are joining the Big 12 may uh, try to make that happen a little sooner than expected. It's funny, those – things about the SEC adding Texas and Oklahoma started to go down as we were on our way to SEC football media days last July and that just like took over and became the story down there uh, when, when all that started to, to get out there and then of course it ended up being true so yeah it's a, it's a lot to keep up with with player movement with school movement uh, NIL deals and all those sorts of things uh, that brings us to that uh, Miami guard Isaiah Wong uh, had said he would transfer or at least his agent had said he would transfer if the NIL money didn't go up saying that uh, his compensation didn't match his value as a team leader on an Elite Eight squad. But uh, in the end, Isaiah Wong did not enter the portal. Uh, I guess they, they're still talking about uh, what's going to happen there. But th- just that particular case aside, it, it seems like that's just part of the new reality of what's going on now. Yeah. I You know, I'm always going to be mixed on this. Uh, I was always of the opinion that it's a pretty good deal to get a full full scholarship and, and cost of of uh, living and all the stuff that, that college athletes get. On the other hand, it's become multi-billion dollar business and, uh, you know, fortunes are being made off these kids and they should get a cut of that action. But, you know, the NCAA – as it has been wont to do, just sort of entered into it without really a plan. Yeah. Now, I've heard different viewpoints. Uh, uh, my buddy and our fr- a friend of the show, Mike DeCourcy of the Sporting News, says, why should we put limits on it? And I don't know. I, I think there should be some standards. Uh, you know, it, it's free enterprise for sure, but I think it, it leaves uh, – 
the the possibility open for I don't know illegal inducements if there's no yeah. laws uh, you're certainly going to break them uh, and I don't know it, it again separates the schools that that we went to and that we covered for many years the mid majors from the upper majors uh, and that's kind of a tough thing I think there's a good thing about the NIL too and I read this um, recently I think Sam Vicini of the Athletic pointed out that the number of players leaving college early for an attempt, and I say attempt at the NBA, has dropped considerably. And I think there's no question why. It's because players are able to make some money in the NIL, and they don't feel that sort of this desperation. You know, you see so many kids that say, well, I want to help my family. You know, my, my mother was all I had growing up, and now it's my time to take care of her type thing. And, and I get uh, the loyalty and I get the inspiration, but sometimes leaving for the pros early is not well-timed and it's not a smart move. And it's sometimes it's dictated by unscrupulous people who are trying to use kids. And uh, I think now uh, kids have an opportunity to stay in school, make some money, get their education, and it could be a little bit of the the best of both worlds. My only issue is competitive balance. And I know uh, uh, that's something that those of us who really care about the game from top to bottom, not just the power conferences, that's something that's that those of us who care about all Division One teams are concerned about. Chris, uh, other news, uh, Duke is hiring Jay Lucas away from John Calipari's staff at Kentucky. He's going to join up with John Shire in Durham. He's 33 years old. Lucas has been at Kentucky for the last couple seasons after several years at Texas. Uh, he played at Florida, played at Texas, son of John Lucas. Uh, he was a key recruiter for Kentucky and has Texas ties. So that, that to me, was a very interesting move. It was for a lot of reasons. It, it kind of shocked me, and it shows you right away the courage of John Shire to put his own stamp on the program. You know, for the last couple of decades, Coach K's staff consisted of his former players at Duke. No question uh, about it. And so for, you know, when Coach Shire lost Nolan Smith to Louisville, he needed a, he needed to make a similar hire. And he went right after the winningest program in history uh, in Kentucky and, and scores Jay Lucas, he's uh, not in the Duke Brotherhood. But I, I think he's no less worthy. I think he's a great recruiter. I know it it shocks some of the big blue faithful, that's for mm-hmm. sure. And, you know, people are talking about putting pressure on Coach Cal. I think Coach Cal eats pressure for breakfast, man. You, you got to – you have to if you're there as long as he has – uh, especially after a year like this year where they had a, a really good team and, and got ousted by St. Peter's. But, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see John Shire's stamp, but he's already made his mark. He's got the number one recruiting class this year and already the number one recruiting class working for next year. And, oh, by the way, he also took two kids out of the portal uh, to fill some holes at Duke this year. So, uh and he's already got a staff that includes, you know, his fellow Brotherhood members, Chris Carowell and Emil Jefferson. So, you know, it's sort of status quo, but it's sort of 
John Shire putting his stamp and not being afraid to go outside the program. And what a home run hire with Jay Lucas. And then another big story out of the NCAA is Mark Emmert stepping down as president uh, in the coming months. Uh, the reaction to that announcement by those who cover college athletics was certainly interesting. Uh, what do you feel like will be the priorities for whoever is next? Uh, with the NCAA's role certainly looking like it will continue to change in the years ahead. Well, I, I think Mark Emmert basically, I don't know, he recoiled from the NCAA's role a little bit. Uh, I think he realized that there were some things they couldn't do or they didn't want to do. I remember he went up to Congress and asked them to, create some sort of uh, general rule for NIL. Uh, I think for many years, probably forever, uh, the NCAA has used uh, university presidents, administrators, and I think the time has come uh, that the NCAA needs to be led by somebody that's been, uh, as Theodore Roosevelt used to say, uh, the arena. Uh, And uh, I don't know, a coach uh, and somebody that's been around the game. I'm talking about somebody like Craig Robinson, who's now the NABC president. Maybe Dan Gavitt, could, uh, who's in charge of the NCAA tournament for the NCAA, but maybe it's time he takes on the whole shooting match. Uh, I know Dana O'Neill of The Athletic mentioned uh, Val Ackerman, the, the, the Big East commissioner, and Greg Sankey the SEC commissioner, I think he's got it made where he's at. Right. Uh, but they need somebody like that. It's it's the same reason that I think the NCAA Tournament Selection Committee needs to be populated more with former players and coaches uh, than just athletic directors. Uh, I just think that if you've not been in the arena, if you can't really put the eye test on something, if you can't walk a mile in a man's shoes and know what it feels like, I don't know that you should be running an, an organization that should be as important for the NCAA. Let's face it, the NCAA has become a joke uh, with the FBI investigation and, and their failure to really do anything about it. Uh, uh, all the way down to NAI, NIL, uh, sometimes uh, the rule changes that they make in midstream uh, enforcement. I don't know. There, there's a lot of problems. It's it's going to take a brave soul to to go in there and fix it up, but it has to be somebody that has experience uh, uh, doing what needs to be done. Chris, our guest this week is one of the greats when it comes to sports writing and certainly uh, covering basketball. Alexander Wolf, uh, 36 years at Sports Illustrated. He's written seven books about basketball and editor of the book Basketball, Great Writing About America's Game came out in 2018. We'll talk about that and more from Alexander's career. Welcome to the podcast. Really appreciate you spending a few minutes with us this morning. Oh, I love talking about this. Thanks for having me, Kevin and Chris. Alex, uh, I I don't want to embarrass you, but if if you're not my... uh, Favorite basketball writer of all time. You're in the top two. Kudos on a great career. I am embarrassed to say that I did not know about basketball, great writing about America's game, until I was looking through my spam folder the other day, and there was an email from Esquire touting uh, the book and three articles that you had chosen as editor to include in the book. And I said, holy crap. How could I miss this thing and where can I get it? And uh, I thought I didn't want to wait as long as as it was going to take by mail. So I ordered it for Kindle. 
and I have dug in. Gosh, what a task going through and, and even starting uh, from the very beginning uh, with Dr. Naismith. How, how did you – that must have been an immense task to pick the best of the best from, from the beginning to, uh, you know, to, to whenever it was you started the project. Well, of course, I, th- the whole undertaking was fraught with, with, with terror, you know, that I would overlook the <laughs> obvious piece that had to be in there. And I got to say that all credit is due um, my editor at Library of America, a guy named Jim Gibbons, because Jim had done a similar project in boxing, baseball and football. And he knew his way around that world. He knew how to find those great old copies of best sports stories, you know, that you can mm-hmm. pick up for 50 cents each at a rummage sale. And and he knew just the buttons to push to to get on the web and find these crazy databases, like the old sport magazine pieces. Um, and, and I got to say, it was a combination of visiting old favorites. You know, obviously, there, there are three or four ones that I – I instantly thought, oh, yeah, got to go back to this one or that one. But probably more than anything, just discovering pieces that I had never seen, like Peter Goldman, this great writer at Newsweek who did all these cover stories in the 60s and 70s for Newsweek, did this piece about this obscure globetrotter named Leon Hillard that, oh, gosh, what a wonderful piece. And it was a piece like that that really got me excited and said, okay, yeah, people know about the great Gary Smith uh, profile of in this case it was Pat Summit that yeah. we included, but it could have been any one. A great of, story. Yeah, it could have been any one of a dozen of Gary's great basketball yeah. profiles. But people know about those, or maybe the inevitable excerpt from the Halberstam breaks of the game. But uh, the Peter Goldman on um, uh, which ran in Sport Magazine on on Leon Hill, Hillard, this obscure globetrotter who ended up shooting his wife, uh, was just so beautifully done and just captured. One of those little caught in the cracks part of the game we love, you know, they're just, that's the one thing about basketball that I think it has over so many other sports is the, the subculture boxing has a little bit of it, but uh, Chris, you know it, cause you've, you've plumbed those depths too. It's, you know, the summer travel scene and, you know, we have an excerpt from George Dorman's wonderful book, play their hearts out. And, and I really think where basketball writing kind of took off, was in the 60s and 70s when writers turned to those out-of-the-way parts of the game and said, hey, that's really worth writing about. You're exactly right, Alex. And it it was Sport Magazine that made me want to become a sport writer, uh, a sports writer, because those were the the stories that that I call, and I actually teach sports writing now at the college level, immersive journalism, where it took you on the ride from the very – from the lead till the final graph. And I think you just did a great job of going back and, like you say, plumbing those depths. Uh, it, it's a great addition to my library. Uh, thanks for doing it. And I'm, I'm sorry I didn't realize <laughs> it was out there. You know, you get so busy from project to project, your, your head sort of gets in the sand sometimes. Well, this thing is supposed to stand up for a while. So <laughs> the idea that it's, it's taken a year or two for you to discover it, that's, that's the beauty of it. Library of America. These yeah. are acid free paper. You know, this is actually supposed to to last. Yeah. So no apologies necessary. Chris. 
You mentioned Gary Smith writing about Pat Summit and you know, Frank DeFord's famous profile of Bobby Knight. I've read both of those over the years. Uh, it's hard to say who's the greatest in any particular thing, but I, I got to think those two in particular are, are on the short list when it comes to sports writers it, with really their ability to, to frame whatever they're writing about it and sort of the bigger picture of what's going on at the time. Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up reading Frank. I mean, he was, when I'm a teenager, raced to the mailbox and I remember his great profile of Al McGuire. Um, oh yeah, thinking that that was the, the greatest thing I'd ever read at the time, and it, it led me to want to go into this business. And then Gary, just the daring with which he he tackles stories. Um, what was the first line of his great Dale Brown profile? I think it was, "I am a molecule." I think that was <laughs> his opening line. And um, with Gary, it's a high wire act, and he always somehow gets to the far side of that that tight tight wire he's walking on um and just reports the hell out of every story you know he's goes back and reasks questions and um we could have included five or six of Gary's his John Cheney profile uh his Larry Brown piece he he did so many wonderful uh coach profiles and then, of course, there was the Richie Parker piece and, uh, you know, on and on and on. And that was really the task with the book. Um, we wanted the book to be a chronology. So it begins with Naismith and it ends with stuff that gets posted on the Internet. Yeah. Um, but we also felt there were certain characters who just had to be included. Um, there's a, a Jordan piece. There's a LeBron piece. There's a wooden piece, um, the night piece. You know, you, you sort of have these these summits that you have, no pun intended, given Pat being in there, right. that you had to kind of hit. So we we had these multiple um, obligations we felt we were doing and that somehow we could keep the book to come in at a at a page count where we could afford to, to publish it and sell it and not go bankrupt doing it. <laughs> that was a big, big ta- challenge. Alexander Wolf is our guest. Now, now Kareem Abdul-Jabbar wrote the forward. Is he in some ways an underrated great player? I know that may sound sort of funny, but the argument is always Jordan versus LeBron. Sometimes to me, the answer is Kareem. How, how do you view the, that and him in just the, the history of basketball? Well, I think there's always a bias against the big man because you know, you're, you're sort of born big. It's mm-hmm. There's something just so much more exciting about the player who's somewhere between six three and six nine, and is explosive. I mean, they always say that big men don't sell shoes, you know, because kids aren't dreaming of being seven two and having a, a sky hook. So I, I think he <laughs> he always battled that. Um, his longevity is something, you know. It's like the frog in the pot that doesn't know it's it's boiling to death. Mm-hmm. Kareem was just this inevitable force, and I. I got to say, in, in some ways, I think he's an, over, an underrated writer. And <laughs> yeah. I had no idea yeah. um, until I really dug into some of the stuff he's written. And sometimes it's, it's just blog posts and sometimes it's been magazine pieces. And he's written six or seven books. Um, there was so much going on there that we in the business just kind of looked past because he was hard to approach. And he didn't really want to. I think he distrusted those of us who were. Yeah. We're trying to pry him open a little bit. And, and that's been one of the joys of not just working on this. And we include one of his pieces in here as well as him writing mm-hmm. the introduction. But I did a Where Are They Now piece for SI about how Kareem had kind of reinvented himself as this commentator on on 
public events and uh, he started writing mystery novels, all these things. And uh, uh, boy, that was that was fun to do. And he's pretty honest. I mean, if you ask him about how is it that you weren't able to get a get a position in the game when you retired as a coach or just tutoring big men. And he's pretty honest. He says, I, I was really standoffish and a lot of people didn't like me. And I realized that a lot of it was my fault. Wow. Yeah. He, he's such a Renaissance man. Uh, you know, he's a jazz collector and just an endlessly fascinating personality. You know, one of, one of your favorite stories of, uh, that, that you've written, uh, my favorite stories of yours, I should say, was the game that saved March Madness about Princeton's near upset of Georgetown in 89. I've always wanted to talk to you about that because on the same day, my alma mater nearly took out, should have taken out, number one, Oklahoma. The game was at Vanderbilt in Nashville. And I think you're right. The premise of that story and the game I saw because – if you'll recall, Billy Tubbs was not a well-liked dude because they would run up the score on people. And all up and down press row as East Tennessee State was about to pull the upset. You could see these fist pumps and guys cheering and stuff. The NCAA supposedly frowns on that. But uh, that was a historic day. And I thought it was cool that, that you and Sean Gregory uh, chose to set your sights on that Princeton-Georgetown game. Can you talk a, a little bit about that piece? Yeah, now, Sean, you should know, um, has been on the staff at Time Magazine for a long time. Actually played at Princeton. He didn't play on that team. He came along oh, six, seven, eight years later, um, but knew a lot about the legend and lore of of the game. And he was the one who actually came to me and said, how about doing a recreation, a kind of TikTok of the whole thing, <laughs> and particularly framing it in just the way it was in the headline. And I'm so glad you mentioned the ETSU Oklahoma game because there were so many other near misses. It, but because that particular game uh, led to Vital claiming he was going to stand on his head or wherever it was, <laughs> yep. it was one and and because of the audience built and people were calling one another during the second half, hey, you need to check this out. I think it did take on that that special quality, and then you, of course, you had the. Um, the the tournament contract coming up almost immediately thereafter for renewal and CBS knew that it was, it was golden. And, and Jim Delaney was in full retreat. He was all ready to get rid of the little schools and he got shouted out of the room after that game. <laughs> um, so, and you know, they've, there have been a lot of cataclysmic events in college sports since then, as we all know, but somehow they, they figured out how not to screw that up. Do you think we can continue not to screw up the NCAAs because as the game progresses and becomes almost like free agency and NIL, uh, I so worry, and I've talked to Jay Billis about this, uh, of a breakoff and a power conference NCAAs, and he says, come on, Chris, you know you'd watch it. And he's got me there. I would watch it. But the reason I love the, the NCAAs is – for the piece you wrote, Princeton's near upset at Georgetown, East Tennessee State almost beating Oklahoma. I think Western Carolina had a shot to beat Purdue one year, and then, of course, it finally happened. That's the stuff, I think, that appeals to the masses. Do you think that'll ever go away? Well, I, you know, I'm right there with you. Um, and I, I've always believed that 
the tournament kind of diminishes in its appeal from the first four days, the first week. Yeah. Um, and then the final four is sort of the revenge of the chalk and we all kind of know what's going to happen. Um, you know, aside from, you know, is Chris Jenkins going to knock down an insane shot, but, uh, yeah, I certainly the, all these office pools don't take place. If it's all names we're familiar with it, half the fun is the oddball mascots or the 92 year old nun on the bench, whatever it is. And so I mean, one of the things I, I'm alarmed too about some of this NIL stuff, and I think my biggest fear always was competitive balance would would be jeopardized, and we're starting to see that. But on, on the flip side, we are seeing, um, you know, like Michigan had that guard who who struggled early in the season this past year, Devontae Jones, yeah, who played at Coastal Carolina, and by the end of the season, he was pretty much shouldering the whole team, and. I guess it's guys like that. If if the transfer portals give the kind of mid-major stars a chance to show their stuff and then they go on almost like a graduate year to play for a power conference and then go on with their lives, I suppose that might retain some of the competitive balance. Um, but I, I, I worry, you know, and for Jay Billis just to kind of wave people like you and me away, Chris, mm-hmm. and say, ah, <laughs> oh, you'll watch. You know, of course we're going to watch, but is that really what was great about it? And yeah, I, I guess the proof will be in the pudding here in the next few years. Are we con- going to continue to get? You know, it doesn't have to be a sixteen over a one every other year, but but at least uh, some bracket busters, you know, to keep us remembering what we loved about it in the first place. Yeah, no doubt about that. Uh, one, one more for me, Alex. Uh, times change, and you know, certainly the internet and social media have made a big impact. But th- does it make you a little sad to see publications like Sports Illustrated take on such a different form now? When that was, you know, you were talking about running to the mailbox. That was me too when I was a teenager. It, it was the magazine of record for so many of us for so many decades. Does, does it make you a little sad to see those changes? It does, and I think what it is, and and the three of us know this. It's the setting the agenda for the conversation. You always felt that, that we had a voice in that. Um, you know, if there was a, a renew my subscription classic from Gary or, you know, some investigative piece that we might've worked quietly on for three months, you know, a whole team of people. And, you know, we still do it, but when you're not appearing every week, you're just not top of mind with people. And that that's such a shame. Now I will say in the last, Oh, year or two since there was a little bit of a personal shakeup at the magazine and a lot of emphasis has now been turned back into putting out what they call the daily cover. Sure. Um, I think the website has, has definitely found its stride, but let's face it, the three of us, I mean, what we remember and loved and kind of the rhythm of our sports following lives, we're going to have to find it from other sources, I'm afraid. Uh, just yeah. like the rest of the world. So, I, yeah, it, it definitely hurts. I left the magazine in 2016. I realized, you know, I'd been there for this great ride, uh, 36 years. Um, you know, that included the 80s, which were just the magazine was flush with advertising. We could just do any story we wanted to do. The answer from editors when you propose a story was, when can we have it? You know, which is what every, <laughs> every reporter wants to hear from an editor. Um, so I think that's where some of my regret comes from but like the rest of the world we just need to to go to different ways of of delivering content and speaking of that i'm so glad that esquire sent me that email because again 
uh, embarrassed to say I didn't know about, about basketball, great writing about America's game, but I'm so glad I found it. You did such a great job picking great stories. I think those of us who got into this for a living uh, at a level like you did at Sports Illustrated and, and me with, with Blue Ribbon, I think we got into it because we loved the stories that basketball could tell. And uh, thanks for being one of the best storytellers in the game's history, buddy. Thanks so much, Chris. It's really kind of you to say. And I loved working with you when you would do do correspondence work for, for SI. I mean, just being part of a team that was throwing a blanket over this sport that's so hard to throw a blanket over. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we didn't have the web back in the day, and we we tried our best, but – yeah, those were those were glory days, and when Dale Brown vowed, that, <laughs> when he vowed that he was not going to sleep during an, an entire SEC tournament, and then he called us all at three in the morning to prove that he wasn't sleeping. Remember that we went to his hotel room. <laughs> or, that it seems like I remember that, or maybe that was a fever dream. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to distinguish the one from the other, isn't it? <laughs> but, but that that was the beauty of it, and and in those days, I'll never forget those days. So thanks for being a part of it, Chris. Alexander Wolf, he is sports writing royalty. Thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate you joining us for our podcast and uh, hope again we can uh, catch up with you down the road. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Chris. Take care, guys. You too. Thanks, buddy. Great to have Alexander Wolf with us. Uh, just one of the all-time greats, Hall of Fame writer, all those years at Sports Illustrated. I mean, and, and what I said was true. I mean, I, I was one of those kids that on Thursday or Friday, man, I started looking forward to going to the mailbox and getting that magazine and and reading great pieces uh, written by guys like Alex and, and, and all those others we talked about, whether it's Frank DeFord or Gary Smith or whoever it was. Uh, that, that guy's just terrific. Uh, you appreciate sort of his perspective, and, and, and you have this too, perspective on – on the game and how it's changed and, and knowing, you know, the, the key players and the connections to, to, to history years past versus present. I, I just think it's really fascinating to talk, to talk with people like him. Yeah. He's like I said, and, and I wasn't just saying it because he was on the show. He really is one of my all time favorite basketball writers. And yeah, it was the old sport magazine and later Sports Illustrated that made me want to become a sports writer and taught me before I even went to journalism school how a great sports story needed to be written. And Alex is one of those guys. And uh, I hate that he doesn't have any regular offerings somewhere anymore. But, you know, he's been busy. I think he was a general managed a, a minor league basketball team and and, you know, he's edited the book we talked about. He's made a short film documentary. So he's staying active. Uh, his is a voice that, that needs to be heard from, I think, in, in not just uh, basketball, but athletics. Now, one more piece of news from uh, college basketball. And uh, this started to uh, get out there as the tournament was actually going on. The NIT, the National Invitation Tournament, uh, looks like it's going to go away from Madison Square Garden, at least for the near term, and maybe go to some other sites around the country. As somebody who's been a part of that with a, a couple different programs, Vanderbilt this year and went uh, you know, a few times with Belmont, going and playing in New York at Madison Square Garden was sort of the carrot that was out there for the tournament. Like, that was the goal. That was uh, really what made it fun was winning a couple games and getting yourself in position to where if, if you win that third game, you're going to go play in New York. So 
I'm not sure exactly how I feel about that. Maybe it'd be cool to go play at Hinkle Field House, or you know, if you if it had another historic arena, you could go play it in. But it's not going to be as big of a deal or, or feel the same as Madison Square Garden, where the tournament had been for decades and decades. And going back to a time when it was on par, or maybe even beyond the NCAA tournament, yeah. as the more important of the two. Yeah, there were teams that that uh, turned down NCAA bids to play in the NIT back in the day. And you, you were a game away, right, Vanderbilt yeah. this year from going there. And you're right, it, it was a great incentive. Uh, and, you know, it's another one of the game's traditions that we've lost. But, I mean, just looking at it practically, the garden costs 350000 a night to rent. And the crowd at this year's title game that Xavier won over Texas A&M was about 8500 So, uh, you know, it's never going to make its money back. Now, I am excited that Hinkle Fieldhouse and the Palestra, the NCAA put it up for bid, and they were two of the facilities that that have put their uh, names in the hat. You know, it's not going to be like the Garden or, or going to see Broadway or, or all the sites in New York, but in, Indianapolis is a cool place, and, and Hinkle, you and I have both been there. And yeah. It's like a church, man. It, it's a mecca, and same with the Palestra. So uh, if it's one of those places – I think it'll still be cool, but yeah, uh, an era has passed for sure. Have you seen a game at the Palestra? Now, I've been in there and walked around, but I've not seen a game there. I I have not. Like you, I've been in and walked around, but never had the privilege. I, you know, most of the, the teams I've covered never made their way up there. So yeah. uh, our, our buddy Joe Lenardi keeps inviting me up. So one year I'm, I'm going to take him up on it, and we're going to hit all the the, the big five in Philly and, and, and catch a home game at, at every place. Well, I thought you were talking about the big five cheesesteak places. I think there are that many of those places too. <laughs> well, that, that'll that certainly be on the agenda. <laughs> All right, Chris, as we wrap it up, uh, we, we've uh, done spoiler-filled recaps of, of various shows over the last couple years. I, I've, I've been way into watching Ozark uh, on Netflix the last few years that it's been on. This is the fourth and final season. And as we record this, I just finished watching the final episode this morning. I don't want to go too down, too far down the road and spoil it for anybody who might not have seen it because it really hasn't only been out for a few days, the last six episodes. Right. But it's been really a terrific series to watch over the last few years. Yeah, I, I almost hate to tell you this because uh, it, it's nerdy. Uh, but I watched the, the second half of, of, of season four in less than 24 hours. Goodness. Uh, I just couldn't, you know, take my eyes off of it. And, you know, it was a great story, however improbable, uh, <laughs> that the family, the bird family kept kicking after all people were dropping like flies around him. But I'll tell you, it was great for a couple of things. Uh, the writing was good. Um, and Jason Bateman and Laura Linney, the principal characters, are national treasures, in my opinion. Uh, love, love, love both of them. If you haven't seen the film Game Night with Jason Bateman, I wholeheartedly recommend it. Uh, but just for the, those two uh, performing on, uh, you know, at, at a high level, uh, I, I think it, it made it for me. Uh, and then the, the, uh, the character of Ruth was was a treasure too. Uh, she was scrappy and and tough, and and at the same time, you know, scared and vulnerable. So. I think those contrasts of the show, you know, being, I don't know, sticking your chest out, being cocky and confident that you can conquer the world one minute 
and then being afraid of your own shadow the next. Right. Uh, that's really what I think drew me into that show. And I'm going to miss it. But it's like every class I ever teach, man, with about two weeks to go, I, I'm thinking, I've taught these kids all I can. I got no more. You know, I, I'm just beating a dead horse. And some of these shows are like that. Uh, sad to say, Better Call Saul, another one of my favorites, is winding up here in the next few weeks. And I don't know if you've ever seen it and or the whole Breaking Bad universe, yeah. but that's a trip. Uh I don't know if I can go down it again, but I sure enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, that might be the next one that I bench watch. Uh, I've had a couple people recommend Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, so I may try to check You'll those like out it. too. So, uh, But, hey, I wanted to uh, get your thoughts on uh, how Ozark finished without giving away too much to our listeners here. Chris, always a lot of fun. We'll do it again next time, man. All right, buddy. Thanks. For Chris Dorch, I'm Kevin Ingram. That is the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. We'll talk to you soon.